Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. When it comes to investing, time is your friend. If you get started early, compound returns do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. But what if you didn't put money into the market when you were young? What if you start investing later in life? I want to know how we can still reach our goals and what compromises we might have to make. And in today's dumb question of the week, are target date retirement funds a good option? All right, let's get into it. So I guess, Roman, we should really kick off with what do we mean when we say starting late? Now, I guess this is a question of how much of our audience do we want to offend? What would you say is starting late when you're old? Uh, probably about 40, maybe. You know, that's latish. Yeah, I think if you get into your 40s and even your 50s without money saved and invested, it's going to be an uphill struggle, probably. And I have had that discussion in power hours with people. You know, sometimes they tell me, look, I'm self-employed. Sometimes they work in a trade where obviously they're in charge of saving for that retirement. And they say, well, look, I've reached 40. I didn't think I'd have to save for retirement because business was good. You know, I've got a property, maybe, buy to let. Or, you know, there's some other reason why they've kind of deferred it. The house is my retirement. (laughs) I don't (laughs) want to hear that ever again in my life. (laughs) So that's that. I think, you know, 40 is probably quite late, but it's never too late. You know, I always think there's still room for manoeuvre, usually. Well, you started young. Well, I kind of didn't because, you know, I was an academic for a long period of time and I was working as a postdoc at Oxford. So you had no money. Yeah, yeah, it was almost nothing. And so I started quite late. And then when I was working in banking, I kind of arrived after the the kind of crazy periods when people got bonuses for... Playing golf. (laughs) Playing golf. And kind of crazy bonuses. Yeah, so I joined in 2001. So I didn't really earn a lot until the end. So no, I mean, I haven't got a huge amount of savings. But you're still young, Roman. <laughs> Not really. How old are you? Uh, one second. I actually looked up. You're 55. Oh, God, yes, I am 55. It's not old. You're the same age as Will Smith. Now, I don't want to live in a world where Will Smith is old. But I think the important thing is to understand that the compounding is really important. So if you speak to someone who is young... Just try and encourage them to put that money aside because they won't want to hear it, but you've got to tell them anyway. And it's difficult to underestimate how important compounding is. Like it really does make all the difference if you do get started young. This is not a small effect. This is an incredible, powerful effect. And really the kind of combination of doing nothing for a long period of time, but putting money away and then just leaving it, that's really powerful over the long term. So when you say doing nothing, you mean just leaving it in the market? Yeah, the only active decision here is to defer consumption. And that's difficult because when you're 20, you want to go out with your friends. You want to buy nice clothes. You want to go on nice holidays. You don't really care about what will happen when you're 50 because... I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) And they feel immortal and it's, it's all exciting, which is great. And I think that's right. You should enjoy your 20s. But Putting some aside is so important and also building the habit for later in life when you earn more. So what's the magnitude of the effect? Just give us some idea of the difference between putting money in the market when you're 20 versus when you're 50, say. And it is staggering. So I tutor Laura's grandson and one of the things they're doing at school right now in GCSE is compounding. So let's have a look at one of those sums. So let's assume that markets are going to return a real return. This is above inflation of 6% per year, which is pretty much in line with the last 120 years. And this isn't anything fancy. This is just a global equity fund, say. 
if we start when we're 20 and we retire when we're 65, then your money will increase. Every pound that you put in or dollar will increase almost 14-fold. That's the money you put in when you're 20. When you're 20. Will grow 14 times over by when you're 65. Yeah, every pound that you put in. So that's really powerful. Also annoying. <laughs> you think back. <laughs> yeah. But what about when you're 50? And when you're 50, suddenly, you know, a lot of that disappears. So it's 2.4 times. That's how much it'll increase between the time when you're 50 and 65. It's a crazy amount of difference, isn't it? We're still doubling the money. But, you know, that's not such a powerful effect. So whatever you can set aside when you're 20... And I do speak to people who are in their 20s who work in tech usually. And they say, oh, you know, I've sold one business. And you think, well, you're sorted. You know, that's it. You're done. But look, I mean, I think the important thing here is that for most people, that powerful compounding can really transform your life later on. So if you can convince people to do that early, so much the better. The trouble is, this episode is about what if you don't do that? Yeah. I assume people are going to be like, why are you telling me this? It's too late. I'm 40, I'm 50. Well, you know, you can still try and convince your kids and your family to do it. Yeah, then you don't have to give your kids any money. Don't do what I did, son. (laughs) (laughs) But look, yeah, I think there are lots of options when you're older that you can look at. And I wouldn't feel despair if you've left it, you know, a little bit late. What are some of the reasons that people do leave it later? You talk to people all the time. Well, usually they assume that they're going to be wealthy or they don't even think about it. That's a fairly common thing. So I think now that people have to be opted into a pension by default, in the UK at least, that's changed. So anyone who's employed automatically has contributions to their pension. Yeah, for all we slag off the UK government, that is one of the best pieces of legislation they've come up with, the auto-enrolment. Ever. And I think that's going to change people's lives later on. And we'll see that, you know, in the future. It's also just the fact that people might start investing late because they had financial commitments when they were younger, they were academics. Like you say, they didn't earn much till later in their careers. Or just a lack of knowledge. Maybe you're scared of the stock market when you were younger. Or lack of knowledge, yeah. I think a lot of people aren't aware that compounding is very important and how powerful their youth is in terms of compounding effects. Because what's frustrating is, you know, not everyone's a nerd about financial markets like we are and enjoys talking about them, but you don't really have to be to invest, right? You just have to get a few simple decisions right and let it go. And this is what worries me about things like TikTok videos where they're talking about investing in the property market and becoming a millionaire and choosing single stocks. These are the stocks which are the 10 baggers, because that's completely the wrong attitude. That's not a game you're going to win. So that's worrying, that kind of level of misinformation. So I think that's the problem as well. People perceive investment as a kind of gamble. And, you know, cryptocurrency, I think, burnt a lot of people. You know, they were drawn in by the crazy returns and then burnt when markets inevitably imploded. And also just some people have a loss aversion, don't they? Maybe they hear these kind of stories and they think, wow, it is a gamble. It's not for me. And then that has disastrous effects for their finances in the long term. Well, some people, you know, I speak to a lot of people who've got divorced who actually did have reasonable savings, but then suddenly find themselves in a position where they haven't got enough. And my divorce, you know, I lost half of my savings. But, you know, I think it's not a kind of unrecoverable event, put it that way. Yeah. And you say savings. It's also true that some people have delayed consumption, but they've not invested the money. They've just kept it in cash over the years, over the decades, which is obviously not what you want to do in the long term. I don't speak to many people where that's happened. Usually it's a case of, 
you know, they've invested and they've had a nasty crash because they invested too much in growth stocks. I've had that conversation quite a bit recently. And, you know, suddenly they see a huge amount of their wealth disappear. And then the bond crash, you know, that happened last year. A lot of people had money in supposedly safe investments managed by some financial advisor. And then because of the fact that bonds lost, you know, half their value, if it was a long duration fund, you know, that could have just disappeared. Yeah, I think your audience might be self-selecting though. Like if you are the kind of person who's just been saving money in a savings account and in cash for a long period of time, you probably aren't going to power around with Roman, are you? <laughs> like, I know that if you look at the stats, there are a lot of people with the kind of dead money in savings accounts. It's a big problem in the economy. Premium bonds, that's the one I hear so often. Yeah. They say, look, I've got this amount in premium bonds. And I try not to look amazed and uh, fall over when they say how much they've got in premium bonds. You're just thinking, wow, that's a mistake. Premium bonds are clever because it's a great name from a marketing point of view. And it's also tapping into people's sense of gambling in a way. Yeah. And I think that's been a huge destroyer of wealth in terms of returns over the long term. And people don't appreciate how much they've lost that way. The loss aversion thing I always find interesting because when you talk to someone who is just scared of the stock market, for example, it's kind of hard to explain how the big risk is not taking enough risk in the long term because it's almost like trying to explain how if you drive too slow on the motorway, it's really dangerous. Yeah, that's very similar. That's a good metaphor. And I think people don't appreciate that for different periods of time, risk changes, it completely transforms. You know, over a one-year period, equity is very risky and bonds are very safe. Over a 40-year period or 30-year period, well, suddenly bonds are a disastrous risk because you're just not going to make it, right? <laughs> That's the simple truth. Whereas with equity, it's very likely you will get very good returns over that kind of period. And people don't really appreciate that risk can transform depending on the time period. And, you know, I think a lot of investors don't appreciate that either. So let's say... We're in our mid-40s or early 50s, whatever it might be. We've not saved a lot over the years. We've not invested at all. Where do we begin? I think the first thing to say is a lot of people think, well, I should just increase the risk, right? I should just put my money into, I don't know, cryptocurrency or perhaps single stocks, which are likely to kind of surge upwards. And I think that's a big mistake because expecting that that's going to save you over these shorter periods of time is very, very, very risky. Yeah. Because once you shorten that horizon, let's say you invest in NVIDIA, right? That's the kind of hot thing at the moment. Everybody's piled into the same stock and it's surged. But the problem now is that it's going to have to deliver incredible earnings growth to justify that price. And that's the trouble with fads. You know, people get drawn in and then, you know, they get disappointed. People think they have to catch up, though, don't they, for lost time, which is a mistake. Like, if you've been driving too slow on the motorway, don't go putting the pedals <laughs> on the metal and driving at 150 miles an hour now. You're going to crash. Because, you know, it's very likely that you're going to lose your money that way. You know, if you have a concentrated portfolio or you have a lot of leverage, you could be wiped out. And instead of a kind of modest retirement, you end up with penury. That's the problem. I think the first thing to start with, if you haven't been investing and you've got to this stage, because obviously you've had a problem with the concept of investing, whether it was you were scared of it or you didn't know about it or you just procrastinated. So the first thing is to set your goals, I think. Like, what are you going to be investing for? And therefore, what's your time horizon? Is it retirement? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. And I think learning about what kind of returns to expect is also important. Calibrate your expectations based on reality 
rather than marketing and just look at what returns have been in the past. So use those base rates, you know, 6% real return is a reasonable expectation for equity over a period of a decade, 15, 20 years. And you're talking about diversified global equity. And all we mean there is you're kind of owning a little bit of all the stocks in the world. Which you can buy with one really cheap fund. So in America, you can pay just 0.08% per year fee for that. And that's it. You just buy it, you hold it and forget about it. And if it's a case of UK, then you can buy something for like 0.12%, I think is the cheapest global equity fund I know of. So if you're coming to this position, take a breath, educate yourself, look at what your goals are, like when are you planning to retire? Is that your main goal? How much will you need? And then also look at your current financial situation. Maybe you've not invested, but do you have debt that needs paying off? What's your mortgage? And also, are you actually starting from scratch? Because we mentioned the auto-enrollment thing with pensions. You might have pensions if you're an employee over the years, which you don't know about or you forgot about. And the government in the UK has a free pension tracing service, which you can plug your details in. And, you know, maybe there's a pot of money there you didn't know about. Wouldn't that be a lovely surprise? Just imagine. A lot of people have this surprise. Because, you know, it's common to move around in your career so much now in your 20s and 30s. Maybe you've worked for a dozen employers by the time you've reached your mid-40s. And also, I think the reason a lot of people in the UK haven't invested is because there hasn't been this transfer of knowledge over the generations. Because our parents had these defined benefit pensions where they didn't have to know anything about investing or take the risk themselves, they never built up the knowledge and then they never passed it down to us. Yeah, my dad never really taught me about investing. For him, it was very much a gamble. And my mum didn't really know much about it. But I think that's true. You know, the generations that came before us probably weren't that clued up about it in the first place. No, you bought a nice house, it went up a lot in value, you had to define benefit pension from your employer, and now you're going on four holidays around the world every year, <laughs> spending the loot before it's meant to be passed on to us. <laughs> to be fair, though, they do a lot of childcare, I've heard. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> but I think having those goals as well, and I think one of the goals is figuring out how much is enough. So perhaps you have to kind of reevaluate how much it costs you to live and perhaps dial back on some of the expenditure. So, you know, instead of going on three holidays a year, you go to two or maybe even one holiday a year, or you stay in the UK, that kind of thing. It's not pleasant to think about it because, you know, you just assume that you'll have nice things when you're older. But the key thing, I think, the learning I've got as I get older is expenditure and pleasure and happiness are not the same thing. You can live a lifestyle which is a tenth of somebody else's, but still be really content with your life and have really enriching experiences. Things like reading a book, you know, it can be such a pleasurable experience or just walking the dog or going for a walk in the countryside. You know, I just find these really rich experiences which can really lift your mood. I think that's true. Definitely is for me. I mean, cutting back on holidays is a no-brainer, I think, if you're in the position where you're never going to be able to retire. <laughs> you know, you really need to start putting money aside. I think the more tricky dilemmas people face is they want their kids to get on the housing ladder and help them with a deposit. But my thinking there is it's probably best to fit your own oxygen mask first. Yeah, we all want to help our kids. But I agree. I think sorting your own problems out first is really important. Because if you don't, then eventually later on, it's going to be their problem anyway. Yeah, that's the only thing I ever asked of my parents. I don't want to have to support you in your, in your retirement. If you can guarantee me that, it's fine. Spend as much money as you want. 
And you touched on the question of how much money do you need for your retirement. Now, that's an interesting question and a very difficult one to answer, but crucial for all these decisions. So I speak to people from all walks of life who, you know, some of them live in three different countries. They have a house on Lake Geneva, you know, it's, it's very different. And then some people live on, you know, council estates that I speak to, but they still want to learn about investing. But I think the key thing, in the UK at least, is that you do get the state pension. So if you get the full state pension, you're going to get about 10600 a year currently, and that'll probably be inflation-linked. Hopefully that'll still be in place when you retire. And that actually doesn't sound like much, but it's going to help you a lot. Oh, yeah. If you valued that in the annuity market, what is that worth? Like 300000 400000 pounds as a lump sum? Yeah, a lot, I think. Maybe more if it's inflation linked, probably a lot more, actually. So ensuring you have those NI contributions. And again, you can go to the government website to figure out your NI contributions, whether you've got a complete record. And I'm just two years short, so I've just got to keep going for two years. Then we'll never hear from Roman again. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. I'm out. But that makes a big difference to 10,000. And then, you know, work out how much roughly you think you'd need to live the lifestyle you want. Subtract that 10,000 and then... You know, that's roughly what you'll need in terms of annual income from your investments. Yeah. So if you think you need £25,000 a year to live, let's assume you've got a paid off house, you've got 10000 coming from the state pension. So you need £15,000 a year. What does that equate to in like a pot? Like how big does your stash need to be to give you £15,000 a year for your whole retirement? You often hear about the 4% rule. Now, it might not be exact, but as a rough guide, it's probably in the right ballpark, which is that you could withdraw 4% of your pot every year, inflation linked. Flip the equation, that means you need 25 times your annual spending saved up. So let's say you need 15k as an income. Well, that means if you multiply by 25, you're going to have to put aside 375k in savings. And that's daunting if you're starting late, but it's doable. It is doable if you're earning a reasonable amount of money. Usually people have a lot of wealth tied up in things like real estate. So have you got a buy-to-let? Well, that's going to help you a lot. Have you got a very expensive house? And could you move somewhere where prices are much lower? And certainly in the UK, we've got you know the London market and then everything else, where London's disproportionately more expensive. So if you've got that kind of metropolitan premium, you can cash that in. So for a lot of people who've got housing wealth, perhaps they can realise some wealth via just downsizing. And also when you're looking at your private pension, you get tax relief, which is incredibly powerful on the way in. So let's say you're a 40% taxpayer. For every £60 you put into your pension, the government effectively grosses it up to 100 Which feels great. I love doing that. When you withdraw it from your pot, you're obviously paying tax on it, but probably at a lower rate when you're a pensioner, like you'll probably be paying 20% tax and you get 25% of it as a tax-free lump sum at the moment. <laughs> it's yeah. going to start going down over time, I'm sure. But that's an incredible gift. And again, you know, I speak to people from all over the world and they don't have anything like that. And they don't have an ISA, which means that essentially you can save tax-free forever and that money will never be visible to the tax man. That's incredible. And that's before you even talk about the compound returns you're going to get in the maybe two decades until your retirement. So the actual money you have to save is probably quite a lot lower than that intimidating 375,000 figure we just said. And if you are going to be putting more into the pension, which isn't a bad idea. It's a great idea. <laughs> you should be contributing as much as you can. 
And you can also carry forward the last three years of unused allowance. So that's incredibly powerful too. The carry forward is useful if you're the kind of person who earns a lot of money, but has for some reason just been spending it all every year and not saving. Now you can look at it and go, oh, actually, I can stuff £120,000 back into my pension and make up for my past sins. <laughs> but there was a nice calculation. I think this was done by the BBC some time ago. So I don't know if they've adjusted it for the higher inflation rates now. But they were talking about the contributions you need to get a 20k income by retirement as a percentage of your annual salary. And the average salary in the UK then was 26k. It's not much different now. So if you start from the age of 25, then you have to save about 15% of your salary in order to achieve that 20k income. Whereas if you leave it to 35, you have to save just over 20%. But if you leave it to 45, then you have to save almost 50% of your salary to get there. So I think, you know, you can just see that incredible compounding effect working in reverse there. And I think the thing to say here is, even if it looks like you have left it a bit late, let's say you're in your mid-50s and you're looking at the numbers and thinking, oh, I'm not going to make it to what I need to retire properly, some is better than nothing, right? You'll still reap the benefits, even if you don't get all the way there. Yeah, it's not win or lose. We're just talking about a kind of graded payoff. So that's the way to think of it. You've still got that doubling, more than doubling of your investment from the age of 50 onwards. That's going to be very powerful still. It's probably important to say that we are talking about the averages here. You could be unlucky with the timing and get a period of 15 years where the stock market goes sideways or down, and therefore you will come up short. And that has happened in the past. You know, there have been periods when, you know, there's been a lost decade. It's less likely if you invest in a global fund, but still possible. But hey, that's life. (laughs) I don't know what to say to it. There's no way around it. There's no alternative. I think the other thing to remember is you might actually have a longer time horizon than you think, especially if you keep working beyond the sort of typical retirement age. So I saw that currently in the UK for a man aged 66, so when you roughly reach retirement age, on average, you can expect to live another 19 years, but 13% can expect to live until the age of 95. So if you're 55 now, maybe you've got another 40 years of investment returns to (laughs) enjoy. I think the tapering of enjoyment is fairly severe at that point. So (laughs) Charlie Munger's still living out 99. With his peanut brittle and his Coca-Cola, yeah. And the equivalent figures for women aged 66 are to live another 21 years on average and 20% actually make it to age 95. Although life expectancy has come down, I noticed that. I lost a year the last time I checked. It's COVID, right? Is that what it was? Well, it killed a lot of people. That's not going to be good for life expectancy, is it? But I don't know if they kind of adjust for that. Is it kind of COVID adjusted? Or are we expecting COVID to happen every year now? It's an interesting point. I don't know. But yeah, you should always assume that, you know, there could be an event which is not a risk in our eyes, but which certainly life insurance sees as kind of tail risk, which is extra longevity. You know, you could live for a long time. And the costs of care, if you need that, are eye-watering, unfortunately. Yeah, I couldn't believe the cost of looking after my mum. You know, she had Alzheimer's, so it was even more expensive. It seems to me that there's a lot of people in the UK who are kind of waiting for a lump sum, either from an inheritance or maybe a bonus in their career, and that's going to ride in and save the day. I certainly speak to a lot of those people. You know, they often call me, and we have a similar conversation often. What's interesting, really interesting, I think, is that they often see it as a burden and they get really stressed by it. 
You know, you might think that, you know, you get this big payoff later in life and it kind of solves a lot of your problems and you're going to be happy about it. That's not what I see. I just see people who are very stressed, who are thinking, you know, what should I do with this? You know, should I invest it now? Should I drip feed it into the market? Should I pay off my mortgage? You know, what should I do with it? So in fact, I think that it often stresses people out when that happens, but it is a good thing. Definitely a good thing. (laughs) Don't kind of get stressed by it. Don't feel that you have to do something immediately. There is no rush. And thinking about it and planning what you're going to do with it is much more important than rushing into some course of action, which your brother told you to do or your financial advisor even told you to do. Really think about what your goals are and how to achieve those goals with what you've been given using the things which we've described. You know, understand what markets can give you over that period of time. Think about what kind of returns you want. Do you have to take a risk with it? Or can you have a more safe investment portfolio? You know, you could have more in cash, you could have more in money market funds, which give you a pretty good return at the moment. So it doesn't have to just be equity and it doesn't just have to be in high risk investment. Yeah, the higher yields that you can get now do at least make it up for discussion of how much of your money should be in equity versus bonds versus cash-like instruments. Whereas a year ago, you'd never even consider something like a cash-like investment. It was just a joke. You know, you'd get no return at all. Yeah, unless you needed the money, you know, imminently within three to five years. It was just going in the stock market for most people, I think. Well, you just wanted return of capital, right? That's what the discussion was. Now you're talking about some return on it as well. So that's really helpful, I think. And, you know, one of the benefits of having a higher rate environment. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. And there are actually some advantages, maybe, to starting later in life with investing. So firstly, you're probably older and wiser. And if you're new to it and you can take your time and learn about how markets work, you're less likely, I think, to make like really rash, dumb decisions that you might have done when you're young. And you also don't have a lot of bad knowledge you kind of have to unlearn. Like we talked earlier about people who are into single stocks and options and crypto and everything. If that's been your kind of financial upbringing and now you have to like transition to becoming a passive global index investor, that's a hard transition. If you're coming from zero, maybe it's easier. I think that's true. And I think it's a similar thing when you look at people who go to university later in life. I think they appreciate the knowledge much more. So I think coming to it late, you will have that extra experience in life. And you've probably got a better idea of your goals in terms of when you want to retire, what your retirement might look like and how much it might cost, because it's not so far in the future. It's more easily modelled, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I think the level of self-knowledge, once you get older, is much greater. And you'd care less about what your friends think is cool, and you care more about what you know makes you happy. So long as you've got the midlife crisis out of the way. And if we're also sort of scrabbling around looking for advantages to make ourselves feel better starting late, you could also say that the government's less likely to screw you. People often avoid putting money in pensions because they fear locking their money away for decades, right? If I'm 20 and I'm putting money in, I can't touch it for 45 years or whatever it might be. If you're 55, it's coming back to you quite quickly, that money. So there's a lot less political risk, however you want to put it. And that's a real risk. I do speak to people who don't live in the UK where it is a real concern. You know, the money's going to kind of disappear into some government black hole. Or that they'll just keep pushing the retirement age back on you if you're younger. Or if they, you know, withdraw the tax-free lump sum, that kind of stuff. Which they're less likely to screw you the older you get, because you're more likely to vote. Show the statistics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, politicians care what you think. That's always a benefit. 
And the one other thing I was thinking about is around that compounding effect we were talking about. So if you're starting young, what was it? If you start at 20, your money's going to grow 14 times over. Whereas if you're late, it doesn't do that. So what that says to me is that if you're thinking of the best use of my time, it's not really focusing on my investments and getting them minutiae right and spending all my time trying to eke out an extra percentage point of return. When you're older, that makes very little difference if you don't have much money. What makes a big difference is increasing your income and saving more of it. So your time should probably be going more into, I don't know, working a bit of overtime or getting a better paying job than focusing too much on exactly what your investments are. And this could be a double whammy, right? Because what you could do is work on developing one of your interests, which can also generate revenue. And here I'm thinking about retirement itself. You know, what does it mean? I don't see retirement as stopping work. I see it as having the choice of what you do with your time. That's what retirement has meant to me, certainly. I mean, you could see this as a kind of retirement, you know, pension craft, and turning what I've learned into something which helps a lot of people. You know, that's been a joy, but it's also now a source of revenue. But I never really thought it would pay off, but it has. Yeah, when we mentioned the state pension of 10000 a year or so, and the value of that is enormous, and it saves you having to build such a big pot. If you could just earn another £10,000 in retirement by you know, working a day or two a week or on projects every now and then, it makes a huge difference. And because you've got that added knowledge over your entire lifetime, you've got really valuable knowledge. For example, I went out for dinner with a friend of mine when I was just leaving the investment banking world and I was kind of panicking about pension craft and the fact it wasn't generating revenue. And he said, don't forget, you've done a degree in physics. You know, we were both in physics together at Imperial. And I thought, yeah, I know lots of physics. <laughs> I could tutor. And he said, yeah, you could become a tutor and, you know, that could be a source of revenue. And so that's what tidied me over. And I loved it. You know, I really enjoyed teaching the kids about math, physics, biology, even chemistry. I remember my physics teacher at school used to go, chemistry, that's just cooking. Biology, that's just gardening. Yeah, <laughs> so dismissive. Well, physicists, that's what we're like. But it was very enriching, that kind of experience. And I'd forgotten I knew it. You know, I completely forgot. I hadn't forgotten the physics. I'd forgotten I knew physics. So I think developing that in your final years of your kind of working career, finding something you enjoy, which you could also perhaps monetize and turn into a kind of consultancy role, that could be really enriching and valuable in terms of money. And you don't have to just stop work altogether. I think that's another thing. You know, I speak to some people who've retired. And suddenly they lead quite a lonely life because all of that social interaction via work and the intellectual stimulation that goes with it suddenly disappears. And that's really shocking for some people. And now that we are living longer, you know, you don't want that. You want to live that kind of rewarding life where you interact with people. You know, I think cutting things off is just crazy. But having that kind of portfolio of careers that you could develop later on, I think is really great. It's certainly worth spending a bit of time thinking about how you can get some longevity in your career and earnings. Because age discrimination is a real thing. If you work in an office and look around you, there's not that many 65-year-olds there, probably. So you have to kind of assume that your earnings are going to tail off. But doing your own business, you know, that doesn't become a problem anymore. I mean, if you offer something valuable, that doesn't really matter what face goes with it or the age of the person delivering it. Okay. Let's wrap this up, Roman. And I think the thing I would take away from this at the end is don't give yourself a hard time, right? Wherever you are in your kind of financial journey, <laughs> just realize that everyone else is kind of struggling along as well. So if you look at the stats in the UK, 
the Institute for Fiscal Studies had an interesting report. When you look at middle earners, 61% of private sector employees save less than 8% of their earnings. And to give some context for that, the goal from the Pensions Commission was for people to save around 15% of their earnings to get a decent retirement. So if you look at it, hardly anyone's doing that. 87% of people are saving less than 15% of their earnings. So if you're struggling along, everyone else is too. Yeah, it's always good to know that other people aren't ahead of you in the race. I think people often do think of it like that. You know, they see their neighbours with a great retirement and they kind of feel jealous of that. The thing to understand is that you're probably ahead of the game if you're listening to this podcast, even. If you're listening to this podcast, you're well ahead of the game. You're going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't laugh. I think that's true. Just up your savings rate and make sure you're not paying too much in fees and you're diversified. You should be all right. We've been talking about how much to save for retirement. Well, a great place to learn about that, but also discuss it with other people in the same boat is as part of our community. To learn more about joining us, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, are target date retirement funds a good option? So let's start by defining them. What are target date retirement funds? The idea here is that you just buy one fund which gradually dials down the risk as you get older. So it starts off with a lot of stocks and not much bonds because stocks return more than bonds long term. And then as you approach retirement, it dials down the amount of risk automatically. You don't have to do anything. You just keep putting money into the fund and it kind of pulls down the risk lever. Yeah. So I know that Vanguard in the UK, for example, has a suite of these funds and they're called things like Target Retirement Fund 2065 or Target Retirement Fund 2060. And it's basically you pick the date closest to your retirement and then it does the risk management for you. And you don't have to choose one which is timed with your retirement. If you just want a safe fund, you could choose the 2015 fund from Vanguard, for example, which is already assuming that you've retired. But all that really means is that it's just really safe investments. A lot of inflation-linked bonds, government bonds, safe stuff. Or at least it was considered safe previously. And it's interesting if you look at Vanguard's target retirement funds. To begin with, when you're young, 80% is invested in diversified global equity, so shares around the world. And then when that starts to change is the age of 43. This is assuming, you know, a standard retirement age. And then it gradually reduces the amount of stocks until it reaches 30% during your retirement. And then what you end up with when you're 75 and onwards, it doesn't change after that, is a big slug of short-term inflation-linked bonds. Why short-term? Because the price flops around less, they're less risky. Why inflation-linked? Because that's what you want. You want money to keep pace with the rate of inflation. And then we've got a slug of global bonds, hedged, sterling hedged, so you don't have a lot of currency risk. And then you've got 30% of the portfolio in stocks. That surprised me when I first started looking at these because I thought, well, do people want that? But since I've kind of learned more about equity returns and those base rates, I kind of think it is a good idea. But what is shocking is that it doesn't dial the risk back up. Interesting. Why would you dial it back up the closer you're getting to your death, I guess? (laughs) Well, the weird thing is that that actually generates the best returns. And there's lots of research on this, which consistently shows that if you do increase the amount of risk, so what you do is you kind of de-risk closer to retirement and shortly after, because at that point, you've got the greatest amount in your pot and a crash is much less recoverable from. But then you sell the safe stuff first 
which is the bonds, and keep the equity and let it compound for longer. Because if a crash happens really late in life, it actually doesn't matter at all. It has a much smaller impact. And in fact, allowing that equity to compound for longer, you know, we've seen the huge effects of equity compounding really benefits the amount you end up with. Yeah, and it's definitely the example of driving too slowly on the motorway. When you look at how likely you are to run out of money in retirement, the portfolios that are most likely to run out are the ones that are heavy on bonds. So the weird thing is, you know, once you reach the age of 80, put your pedal to the metal. Go. <laughs> yeah. Go. Yeah. So what are some of the downsides then? Because on the face of it, this is a sensible strategy. You're taking more risk when you're younger, less risk when you're older. So I think that kind of de-risking is the biggest one for me. I think that's, that's a mistake. And I think it's unlikely to be good for a lot of people. Maybe they did that for marketing purposes because you don't want to seem like you're creating an irresponsible fund. But the research, I think, shows that that's a mistake. The second problem, I think, is that like life strategy funds in the UK from Vanguard, they've got a big UK overweight, like a crazily large UK overweight in the equity component. In the bond component, it's not such a problem. Yield is yield. And local government bonds are probably as good as US ones, for example. But for the stock components, I think it's a mistake to have a six-fold overweight for the UK. Yeah, and I guess that's the broader point when you're looking at any kind of target retirement fund, is that you don't control what's in it. And for some people, that's the big advantage, right? I don't want to think about what's in it. I trust the fund manager to get asset allocation right. One fund, I just buy it and hold it forever. But the consequence of that is you could actually build the exact components of this target retirement fund cheaper if you did it yourself. But the benefit also is that let's say that one of the components massively outperforms. Well, this thing's going to be continually rebalancing as that happens. Whereas you could actually benefit from it because you could move some of your money out of the hugely rallying asset and stick it into one of the underperforming components, for example. So you can do tactical things with this, which you couldn't do if it's all locked up in one fund. Or if one of the components crashes, you know, you could just withdraw less of that asset. Yeah, you're basically sacrificing flexibility for simplicity, which I think for most people is a good sacrifice, right? Most people aren't going to be able to outperform these things. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of simplicity, so I agree with that. And I think the fee is not that competitive. It's 0.24. You can certainly do better nowadays, certainly if you have your own bespoke version of life strategy or a target date fund. It's really hard to outperform something like life strategy or target date fund, despite all the things about UK overweight. Yeah, we had a pension craft competition where we actually tried to beat those funds. And very few people did. Some of them did incredibly well. Teddy actually had an entry which did very well. Your dog. My dog, (laughs) yes. I did help him a bit with the portfolio. But the thing is, at that point, you could actually outperform really easily by going for growth funds or going for crypto. Teddy's retirement is a risky one. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, he's only going to live to 14, so he could take that risk. It's kind of the point we discussed earlier, that if you are closer to retirement, obsessing over the minutiae of your portfolio is going to be less valuable than getting more money in the door of your portfolio. Yeah, that's much more of a priority or kind of worrying about the UK overweight. So if simplicity is your goal, then I think these are a pretty good solution. Just be aware of the drawbacks. And, you know, if you need to, you can always convert it into kind of a bespoke portfolio. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. 
Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.